Welcome to our show, and thank you so much to our sponsor today, Reliance AI. Reliance AI helps organizations manage all privacy operations on a single intuitive platform. Reliance AI uses advanced machine learning technology to automatically generate an always live data map and inventory, universal record of processing activities, managing organizations' data subject access requests, and data protection assessments. So visit www.reliance.ai. That's R-E-L-Y-A-N-C-E dot A-I. Reliance AI. Privacy is in the code. Enjoy the show. Personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information the businesses need to know now. I have a special guest uh, on the show all the way from Oklahoma, Colin Wilkie. He is an attorney and also a state representative for the state of Oklahoma. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to sort of rattle off kind of some of your accolades. I love to chat with you about this. Uh, you authored and passed the country's first opt-in data privacy bill out of the House by a vote of 84 to 11. You're a member of the Data Privacy Working Group of the National College of State Legislatures. Uh, and you served on the following committees, Appropriations and Budget Utility Judiciary, Civil, Insurance, Banking, Financial Services, and Pensions, Administrative Rules, and Transportation. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I do truly appreciate it. Uh, like I told you before, I feel like I should be interviewing you because uh, I'm just so impressed with with your background, and I'm glad that I've had the opportunity to, to listen to your podcasts now, and, and uh, so I appreciate the chance to be here. Yeah. And actually, you and I have a friend in common, uh, Robin Meyer, uh, who was on the podcast. She's amazing, isn't she? She absolutely is. And she's been somebody that's been willing to help me along my my data privacy path as well, because she has more experience than I do in it. Yeah. I thought this would be a great episode to do because, especially in the U.S., people don't understand how difficult it is to get anything passed anywhere. (laughs) You know, like getting the the dog catcher at the local, you know, your city uh, passed in terms of legislation. So doing it on a state level is a really big deal. And we're seeing, we've seen for many years that the states have really taken the reins in terms of trying to pass privacy legislation uh, within the U.S. So just give me a bit of your your background, how you came to this process and why you decided you want to champion privacy. Yeah. So first and foremost, to your point about the difficulty of passing legislation, you know, I think that's actually kind of a philosophical intention within the way our framers founded our constitution, which was we want it to be difficult to limit people's liberty, right? So I think that it's just kind of a general theme through legislation. Uh, and, and sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's a very bad thing. Um, but I got interested in data privacy because I've been in the house for three years and I read the book Zucked by Roger McNamee. And he's a hedge fund investor, former advisor to Sheryl uh, Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, when I read the book Zucked, 
I went, oh my God, my eyes were opened. The future is here, but we live in Oklahoma where we grow it, feed it, or pump it out of the ground. So data was the furthest thing from any of our thinking. And so I uh, read that book. I wrote Mr. McNamee a letter and I said, I want to do something about this in the state of Oklahoma. And then over the past three and a half years, he's been kind enough to guide me to make suggestions about who to talk to in preparing and drafting legislation. Because to your point about the difficulty in passing legislation, I think all too often legislators run bills that they don't actually understand. And that becomes very problematic when you're talking about data privacy. What's the difference between pseudonymization and anonymization of data, right? What is um, what does it mean to transfer data? What is an API? All of those sorts of things play into this, and it's a highly technical area. And so the consequence of meeting with Mr. McNamee and deciding to try and delve into this meant that I had to learn about data privacy from scratch. Uh, as an attorney, I had represented healthcare entities uh, in relation to HIPAA compliance issues, uh, and so that certainly helped, but it certainly is quite different than just data privacy in general. Uh, so over those three years, I boned up on it. I read the GDPR, uh, a bunch of other legislative uh, policies, including the CCPA, because I needed to know, do we need a data privacy officer in every state, you know, in every office, just like they have in the GDPR? Lots of questions and lots and lots of learning. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love that you said you read that book and you decided that you wanted to get involved. So that's my genesis into privacy. I read a book in uh, 1997, actually it may have been 1995, called wow. The Right to Privacy. And actually it's a book my mother read and she was fascinated by it. And so that got me interested. And I was so shocked about what we didn't have in terms of rights. So I thought, you know, we're the land of the free and the home of the brave and all that freedom stuff. You know, privacy has to be in there somewhere. So when you go looking for it, it's not there. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you and, see. And, 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 mm -hmm. Yeah. And to your point, uh, about a year ago, I emailed a data brokerage company called SIFT. And I did that because I had never heard of them, but a journalist who lived in California had emailed SIFT and said, hey, give me all of the data you have on me. And it included things, unsurprisingly, like the last time she changed her iPhone password, her orders on Postmates, et cetera, that this data brokerage company had. So I sent an email to him and I said, I want to know. And they sent me an email back that said, sorry, you don't live in California. You don't have a data privacy law. You don't get to know what we have on you. And that to me just seems fundamentally unfair and discriminatory. Wow, that's eye-opening. That's yeah. eye-opening, right. Uh, right, using the, the lack of laws, you know, to say, oh, well, I don't really have to, because no one's come out and said it, they think that they don't have an obligation to be able to yeah. give people that data. Oh, wow. Uh, Irrespective of the ethics behind it, right? I right. mean, even customer <laughs> service, clearly they don't care about that, right? They're like, we're, we don't care because we're selling to other companies, so. Yeah, yeah right, right. So tell me about tell me about the legislative process that you have to go through and tell me about this bill that you got passed in Oklahoma. Like what, what were the steps that you had to take to get this going? Yeah. So just as a refresher for, for everybody, just and, and, you know, every state's a little bit different. But as a general rule, a bill starts out in either the House or the Senate. 
Uh, it starts out in a committee. Then if it passes committee, it goes to the House or the Senate, depending on which side it started on. And then if it passes that House, it goes to the other House and it goes through a committee and then it goes to the full floor. And then assuming it passes there, it, become, it goes to the uh, governor's desk. So there's essentially four areas where your bill can fail. And so in my bill, the first step was is to do what we call an interim hearing. And so that's very much like a committee hearing at the federal level. And so at the interim hearing, we had uh, Mr. McNamee come in, we had internet service providers come in, and we had a tech industry uh, come in and, and speak about how data privacy legislation would affect them. And at this time, there was only Colorado on the books. And I'm sorry, California was the only one that was on the books. And so the consequence of that was everybody pointed to the AG opinion that said it costs $55 billion to implement the CCPA, which is, to be absolutely clear, not what the AG said. And uh, so during that interim hearing, though, one of the Republicans actually asked the question, could we tax the data that, that, that's being collected so that the consumers could actually receive something for their data? And when you hear a Republican talk about taxing something, you know you're on to something, right? Uh, Republicans <laughs> in Oklahoma do not like to tax things. Uh, and so once that happened, I took, the, took a version of the CCPA and modified it because I wanted our bill to be meaningful. And I don't think that the CCPA isn't meaningful. It absolutely is. Even if you have the right, just the rights to access, correct, and delete. Even if you just have those, that is meaningful. But I wanted to do something that really put the control back into the, into the people's hands uh, because I believe it's your data. And so I took the CCPA, I lowered the thresholds for applicability. So for example, in California, I think it's 25 million gross income before the bill applies to you. In Oklahoma, I, I cut that all the way down to 10 million. I wanted it as restrictive as possible. And then the real, the real kicker was doing the opt-in. Uh, because this is something that, that data companies do not want, whether for technical reasons or for profit. And quite frankly, I think it's for profit. And the proof is kind of in the pudding when you look at Facebook coming out six months ago saying they lost $10 billion in revenue as a result of iOS going to opt in. And my response to them is that wasn't your data in the first place. It'd be like me stealing your car and then being pissed off. I didn't get how much I wanted when I sold it. <laughs> my car, Right. And so um, I ran the bill and it caught everybody off guard because, as you know, Oklahoma, we live in the 19th century still. We're not caught up yet. Uh, and so the first committee hearing, I had to go and I went and talked to all of the committee members of the technology committee, including the chair, and answered any questions they might have. And it passed out a committee, I think, unanimously. And the reason is, is because at that time, people were really starting to wake up to this. The Social Dilemma had just come out on Netflix, et cetera. And so after meeting with the committee, it passed out of there, but it passed with huge opposition from the State Chamber of Commerce, uh, from various tech companies, Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera. The next step then was to take it to the House floor. Uh, and I've got a war story from that if you ever want to hear it. But long story short, AT&T tried to kill the bill uh, and pulled some shenanigans. Uh, fortunately, that didn't happen. And we were able to get it passed out of the House 85 to 11. During that, I answered questions for about an hour and a half on the House floor from members uh, because they were on the side of the state chamber, thinking this was just going to cost tons of money and not actually do anything. Fortunately, we were able to pass it 85 to 11. 
which means that it then got sent to the uh, Senate for their committee hearing. The Senate Judiciary Chair did not want to hear the bill because she is aligned with the state chamber as well. Uh, So when you talk about the difficulty in politics, that one person, so if you think 85 representatives each represent 38,000 people roughly, you know, you're silencing 3 million voices when one person says, I'm not going to hear that bill. So uh, we decided, okay, we'll give it another run. So this session, we ran a a modified version of the bill, still opt-in, et cetera, uh, but this time included limitations on dark patterns and some other things. And at that stage, uh, we were supposed to get a hearing because we had a new Senate Judiciary Chair. Unfortunately, politics got in the way. He got removed as the chair, and the the old chair got put back into place. So again, politics killed the deal on that that side of of the building. Uh, But I cannot underscore and emphasize enough for your listeners how many lobbyists were out here trying to kill this bill. And lobbyists aren't necessarily bad. I don't want to make that the, the point here. Lobbyists can be good or bad. That doesn't matter. But we need people's voices and specifically people in privacy and tech talking to their legislators so that they can appreciate and understand the reality of this legislation. Because otherwise, they will just believe what they're told. Fortunately, I had the credentials and I had the trust of the Republicans. My best friend in the House is the majority leader for the Republicans. I mean, I'm a liberal urban Democrat. He's a conservative rural Republican. We don't agree on much, but we agreed on this because we agree that privacy is is fundamental to a democracy. And I think a lot of the problems we're seeing today is as a result of the lack of privacy. And that's why we're having problems in our democracy. So uh, that was kind of the the shorter version of how that bill got passed out of the house and killed two years in a row by the the Senate. So so what is the status of the bill right now? So the way it works in Oklahoma is our, our legislative sessions run for two years. And so both of those bills are now officially dead. The one I passed two years ago was still alive for this session, but both of them are dead. Uh, however, Representative Josh West, the majority leader for the Republicans, is going to continue to run it, uh, even though I won't be here as his wingman next year. Uh, but he's going to keep pushing it. Um, hopefully, maybe the feds will intervene between now and then. Uh, and if they don't, we're going to keep going down this road because what we don't want to have happen is we don't want to have it happen where you know states pass weak privacy legislation like what we see in Utah. And then, you know, you have 29 states now and the tipping point has happened where it's weak legislation. And so when the feds come in, they pass weak legislation as well. We think that you need to have a balance so that the feds would have a justification to saying, well, yeah, that's a weak state law and that's a strong state law. Which one do we prefer to try and make uniform? Plus, other states are looking around, too. And in fact, that's what the lobbyists were trying to do with my bill. Uh, Between the time it passed the House and went to the Senate, They were trying to get us to gut our bill and basically make it Virginia light. And their goal was then to take that bill and go to every other state legislature in the country and say, look, Oklahoma did it this way. This is a good bill. Just run this. So they're doing a race towards the bottom while we're trying to do a race towards the top. Wow. Now, I I am. This is staggering. I'm so glad that you explained this process. Um, Yeah, it's, it's difficult to get these bills passed. And so I see people. Like you, I consider you like a citizen advocate. Uh, so we see people who sort of come out of left field and they decide they want to make this kind of a passion project and really push it uh, and learn how to 
talk with people in the legislature, explain, answer their questions uh, uh, in a way that makes them understand why they why this is important. Um, but what what do you think about what's happening on the state level in different states? So we we know that California has always been pretty progressive on privacy. They've worked on it for many decades. Uh, their laws are very complex, actually. <laughs> All the different privacy laws they passed over the years. Uh, but what we what we have seen previously, for example, with California, uh, for example, was the first state to pass data breach notification, right? And all 50 states, all states now have their own data breach notification, even though it's different, not the same. Um, are you, do you think that that will that is what will happen with other privacy legislation? It, I'm not talking about federal, but just on the state level. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that you what I think what you would ultimately see happen if you had a tipping point of states that passed data privacy legislation that varied, because I think, for example, CCPA and Utah's legislation are not necessarily congruent. Um, and and so what's going to have to happen, I think, ultimately, is you'll have what's called a uniform commercial law come up, kind of like we have the UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code. We have the Uniform Trust Act. We have all sorts of state by state uniform uh, laws that they end up passing. And I and I think you would see something like that come out for for states as well, because otherwise, if you have a state like California that's really strong and another state that's really weak then that's going to make California an economic pariah. Businesses aren't going to want to do business there. Um, And so I think that you have to have some form of uniformity. I'm sure that you've probably seen the draft that came out of the Uniform Model Legislation Committee, uh, which was just trash. It was abundant trash. Uh, So that is obviously a concern anytime you're trying to do something either nationwide or state by state that's uniform, is is that you got to be careful because what type of law are you actually passing? Um, I don't know that you would actually see too many ununiform laws just because of the way commerce works and the way that data travels. I don't think you can have that disparate of state laws and still create a uniform functioning data system. Yeah. I mean, I, I recently went through an exercise of looking at the state laws, and I'm actually doing that. I'll probably do a presentation before the end of the year on that. Um, and it's... Uh, Concerning, <laughs> concerning to say the least, in the differences. I almost feel like some states want to have their own bespoke thing. You're like, we're Oklahoma, so we're going to put our Oklahoma thing on it or whatever. So to me, I don't necessarily see it as a trend towards people being uniform if they have to. You know, I have seen, you know, it is clear that a lot of the laws that have come after the CCPA in California have borrowed from that, right? So that definitely helps. Uh, but I still feel like every state in some way wants to stand out in their own way. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's natural because it's politics and egos get involved uh, and not just egos that get involved, but also the actual political politics of it gets involved. Right. I mean, I think part of the reason why Virginia's law passed with so much ease is because Microsoft and Amazon got behind it. Microsoft and Amazon did not get behind my legislation here. Uh, you know, if I had a less willing speaker of the House, that bill would have never made it to the floor. 
but the speaker, you know, understood the issue. He understood why it needed to happen. Um, and so that I was very lucky in that regard. Uh, it's not as though I'm just that that persuasive. I mean, while I think I'm a persuasive speaker, uh, at the end of the day, politics really does trump a lot of this, which is going back to your point, you know, at the federal level, concerns about whether it would ever actually become law, politics and money and influence is extremely important. Um, and especially because there is a practical consequence to this, right? I mean, if you think about uh, the small mom and pop shops, and if I didn't have an income threshold or something along those lines, then, you know, even if it's $20,000, you know, to come into compliance, to hire a lawyer, to download the software that they need, whatever it might be, you know, that's a hit to people's pocketbooks. And so, you know, I, I think that state, especially politicians, want to be cautious about gouging and hurting their consumers. And so I can see every state wanting to do something different, um, but I don't know whether or not it would be business friendly or consumer friendly the way they're wanting to do it. I mean, certain states that are more conservative, I think, are going to lean business friendly and those that are more progressive are going to lean uh, consumer friendly. Um, but at, to your point, at the end of the day, you're going to end up getting uh, form fatigue because you're trying to figure out what should I do in Mississippi and what should I do in Colorado? I don't know. Uh, and it also creates mistakes. Anytime right. you don't have uniformity, you're opening up the gate for a mistake to happen unintentionally. But I think a lot of what you're seeing in the GDPR makes a lot of people hesitant to make a mistake because you're you know, you're going to pay for that if you do. Right. Right. Wow. Wow. There's so much to think about. Uh, well, you know, two two things that I think two laws that I feel that have been successful, uh, a successful path that I've seen people take that I would love to see more of uh, reminds me of uh, New York and Illinois. So uh, New York, when they passed their SHIELD Act, which is kind of part of an update of their data breach notification, even though that's a, that's a mess in terms of, you know, uh, all these bills sort of netted together. But one of the things they had in this bill, because they the, the focus really was kind of cybersecurity and data protection as the way we think about it. And so it didn't have a, you know, very few exceptions. Uh, so basically you're a company, you have a, you have some type of financial transaction that you have data of a person in New York, and then this applies to you. And then they have sort of what I consider some common sense, reasonable standards, you know, not saying that you need the, the Rolls Royce version of kind of a data plan or a cyber plan, but something that fits, you know, your company, at least you're thinking about it, not, not that you, 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 you know, throw, like I said, throw your hands up and don't do anything. So to me, I think, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of pushback on, on uh, New York because I feel like the things that they were asking for were relatively uh, reasonable. <laughs> so it, not, not as prescriptive as California, like put a, put a button on your website that says this. It's like, look, you need to have a plan. You need to protect people's data. You know, the AG is going to get involved. You don't do X. You know, that's probably something that I think has a longer shelf life and something that people can probably swallow better. Um, and then the Illinois uh, BIPA law, which, you know, 
I am, you know, I'm from Illinois. So, you know, to me, I'm really happy to see this. And I've seen the legislative process in Illinois. It's, it's bananas. Like they, they pass laws like nothing, like bam, 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 or whatever. So this one came out, no one cared about it for many years. And now it's like this hot thing. But the thing that they did in Illinois with this BIPA law, it's probably one reason why a lot of companies don't like it. It's because they really focus on the harm. You know, what harm can come to an individual when their biometrics are breached? So that's kind of their focus. And that's the reason why that law stayed on the books. It's been pretty fresh because it, it's not saying, you know, we're against X technology or whatever. They're like, look, people have biometric data. You want to use your biometric data, you have to kind of follow these things. And unfortunately, even though it's a relatively simple law, I think it's less less than eight pages and like a fifth grader can read it. Literally, a lot of big companies trip up on that. What are your thoughts? No, I agree. I mean, I think that so there's a there's a legal concept known as the law of the horse, which basically says, you know, you know, back in the day when we all had horses instead of cars, we could have designed all kind of legislation about horses. Like what happens if your horse goes too fast? Well, who's responsible if you, you do this to a horse? Whatever. As opposed to having a general law about property, right? What is a horse? It's a property, you know, theft, whatever. And I think it's the same thing with technology. So for example, going back to the flexibility of New York's law, I think that's really important. In my legislation, I didn't include anything specific either about data security. And part of my thought was, well, I would certainly think as a lawyer that if somebody you know, is hacked or breached and they were negligent, I've got negligence there. I don't necessarily need to tell them how to do it. Um, maybe that would be a good idea for sensitive information, right? Uh, make sure it's encrypted, whatever it might be. Uh, but but I, I think the, owner, the legal concepts are already there for enforcement through negligence and things like that. And to your point about the simplicity of BIPA, I agree. The more we can make these laws simple and understandable, it's beneficial for the companies, beneficial for the consumers, and beneficial for the legislators, because most legislators don't understand most of the bills that they read. I mean, I had a bill recently that came up on the House floor dealing with cattle. I don't deal with cattle. So what I had to do, I had to talk to my Republican friends that deal with cattle. Um, so if you can keep it simple and flexible, that's the best way to do it. Because what are we just trying to achieve here? Two simple things. One, control. And two, accessibility. That's what we're trying to achieve. And so I don't think you have to spell out every single thing. And I, in fact, I think the more you do that, A, the more pushback you're going to get, but B, the more expensive it's ultimately going to be because you're actually going to have to hire experts <clears throat> to do each and every one of these um, aspects of the bill. So I agree wholeheartedly with you, wholeheartedly with you, the simpler and more flexible you can make a law, the better. We don't need to reinvent any wheels, which was part of my reason of opposing the model legislation that came out of that committee, because it reinvented the wheel. The terms were different. The definitions were different. Nothing about it was similar. We, and you know, you talked about most of these laws start from the CCPA and that's right, because why should we reinvent the wheel? Most legislation, in fact, starts somewhere uh, and we go, oh, that's a good idea. Let me rob it and make it okay for Oklahoma. Uh, so I, I agree wholeheartedly with you on that. Yeah. I feel like we in the U.S., we are where the EU was in 1995, maybe even before that. 
like pre-1995. So in 1995, the uh, the EU passed their data directive and then that got updated by GDPR. But but what they wanted to do was the situation they had at the time is like, look, we have all these technologies coming out, these new ways the data is being transferred. We need to have some rule. We need to have some harmonization around Europe, you know, the EU. And so that is kind of the genesis of that 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 legislation. And, and it started out to be a directive. And then after many years, they decided they were going to make it a regulation. So I feel like that's where we are right now. Like there needs to be some type of harmonization of something on a federal level. Like to me, you know, the, the, the two things that people get hung up on, the reason why we don't have any federal like legislation right now is because people argue about the private right of action and then preemption of states. And so my view is forget both of those. <laughs> like take, get a dictionary, write some definitions, make the definitions of sensitive data, personal data, breach notification, make those all harmonize across the states. And then you can leave the, the private right of action at the state level, in my opinion, and not even have to deal with preemption. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, on the one hand, you think about a law like HIPAA uh, that preempts. And, and I really think or at least sets a floor. Let's put it that way. And I, I think that um, that almost has to be the case. We have to have a uniform law. Um, and, and that probably does preempt most states or at least sets a floor for it. So that if states want to be more secure, they absolutely can. Um, to your point about the PRA, uh, I originally had a private right of action in, in my bill, uh, but I took it out fairly quickly because even as a lawyer, I don't think that that's actually going to be a, a, a way to, to work out you know, grievances over this issue. Um, so I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on the private right of action. I think it's just we shouldn't have those sorts of conversations. We need to look at other avenues personally. Um, but I will also say that one of the frustrating aspects and a good aspect at times about living in America versus the EU is they're much more communal. Uh, they're ahead. They're looking at what are potential problems that we can do to prevent these sorts of things versus in America, we rely so much more on the market. You know, we believe in these free market ideals and it hasn't been until the, the very old legislature at the federal level uh, has realized and woken up to what's actually going on and the harm that's being uh, occurring as a result of a lack of legislation, right? I mean, they're finally realizing children's location data is being sold, you know, everything else under the under the sun. So it took a bunch of bad things happening like it always does. In Oklahoma, for example, uh, out on our state capitol, there's a photograph. There used to be 50 oil and gas wells right outside our capitol, right on top of one another. And they realized about 10 years into it, you're wasting oil because you're reducing the pressure to pull it up. So they put in regulations to cause spacing between oil and gas wells. And that, but that was a consequence of seeing all of the bad things. So in, in America, I think we're way far behind on legislation and technology uh, because of that free market belief. And so, you know, I, I don't like the concept of federal preemption all of the time, but I think when you're talking about data, you have to have that. I think you have to have that sort of uniformity like you do with HIPAA. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's tough. It's not easy. Um, 
I feel like, you know, this has to, it takes many years to build a GDPR or build a data directive. So it's not something that can be thrown together before the midterm election and you think it's going to pass and everything is going to be great, right? It happens in phases. It happens in layers over many years and many things that happen. So I think, you know, instead of trying to do this Hail Mary thing, we need to sort of figure out like, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it's like baking a cake. So instead of saying, okay, we're going to bake the cake, you know, on the national level for everybody, you know, someone agreed to the eggs, someone agreed to the flour and the butter and the milk and all the stuff like, you know, and then maybe, maybe once we have those things agreed to at a fundamental phase, we can bake a cake. Who knows? Yeah. No. And you're right. Because as I was saying before, you know, everybody brings different concerns to this. So for example, one of the concerns on my legislation was, well, what if I'm an oil and gas company, right? I make more than $25 million, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, your bill is going to apply to me. Um, you know, how does this affect the oil and gas industry? How does this affect the airline industry? How does this, you know, because we have Boeing here. Uh, we, you know, so there's a lot of different industries that get affected as a result of this. And so to your point, I think maybe targeted industry specific might be a way to go to start getting there. I mean, there's a reason why the legis the federal legislature has not simply gone, oh, the GDPR is there. We're going to do the GDPR. And it's because businesses don't like the GDPR. Um, and so I do think that you're right. We've got to look at small bites. Uh, at the state level, we can do you know a lot more uh, because it's you, we're not dealing with 500 members of Congress, you know, we're dealing with 100 or so. And so it's a lot easier to get it done at the state level. But I think at the federal level, we, we may have to look at it piecemeal. Yeah, I wonder, you know, to me, I, I'm very concerned because a lot of the proposals they have when they think about privacy on the federal level, a lot of it comes out of, uh, you know, the FTC, commerce is involved, nothing wrong with that, right? But I think, in order for us to move from a consumer right uh, slant to more of a human right, I think it needs to be almost like its own agency, its own thing, like, right? So commerce doesn't uh, regulate every industry. <laughs> so, but but we are all humans, right? So if, in the US, if you're not consuming, you really can't really fully utilize the rights that exist now. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, just like with the IRS or, you know, using biometric information and scanning your face, uh, facial recognition technology, et cetera. Uh, you, you really do see um, where, even though I'm not on the internet, data privacy still matters. Uh, when I go through the airport and they scan my face, it still matters. I'm not consuming anything, but I'm walking about and my privacy may be invaded unbeknownst to me. And I think that that's really the scary part is, you know, this is consumer-esque, but just think about it. Most people buy their TV and they don't think anything about what's being recorded on that TV, what's being picked up from that TV. And so I think the surreptitious theft of privacy is a big problem, even if you're not a consumer, uh, because it's happening all of the time. And, and, and it's it's not just because you, your friends, how many of your friends post your pictures on Facebook? How many of your friends post them on TikTok, right? I mean, your information is getting out there, even if you've got all the control in the world over, over you. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I have a philosophical point of view about 
the way we have privacy now and the way things were going about it. I don't know. I feel like we don't have a, I don't know, maybe from when I was growing up to now, there's kind of a lack of cohesion, <laughs> to say the least, around, I don't know, national thing, you know, human things, you know, as opposed to me, 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 uh, you know, the whole individualistic thing. So it's like, okay, if, if, you know, I feel like, you know, Warren Buffett isn't concerned about his privacy, <laughs> like, like I am, uh, and he should be, right? So, because he can do whatever he wants. He can have as much privacy as he wants, right? And I feel like we're entering like almost like a caste system, about who can protect their privacy and who can't. So uh, even at, at, you know, some of our Apple will allow their privacy uh, changes, which are great, right? I have an app, you know, I'm an Apple user as well, but I'm concerned about people who can't afford Apple devices. Like what about those people? No, you're absolutely right. In fact, there was a New York Times op-ed a few years ago that really struck me. And it, and it basically was making the argument about social media specifically. Uh, you know, the number one indicator of poverty right now is whether you smoke. If you're a smoker, that's a pretty good indication of whether you're in poverty um, and um, because of socioeconomic reasons. And so the same thing was in the argument was being made, which is eventually uh, it'll be social media. Are you on social media or are you not? That's going to be an indicator of, of whether or not you're in poverty. And that is a severe concern. And to your point, you know, when you think about, well, okay, what about people who want to consent to sell their data? Well, are we going to make it so that only low income individuals are accessing this because they can't afford to pay the paywall? Um, it is a huge problem. And I think that gets back to the original point. In America, we're very libertarian. Our culture is very libertarian. It's not communal in nature, unlike Europe. And I think that that's a sad thing. I think that we all need to realize that that every single one of us, I, I have a saying that all of us need all of us to make it. And I do truly believe that if we leave anybody behind, exploitation is open and available. Uh, I completely agree with you on that. And we have to be concerned about that. I'm happy about a lot of the changes that companies like Apple are making and they're championing, championing privacy, which is great, but I would love it to be a right that I have as opposed to something that is provided to me by a company. <laughs> and that was the selling point in Oklahoma. You, I mean, from my perspective, and especially with the interpretations of Roe versus Wade and everything else, you have a constitutional right to privacy. That's why the cops can't just walk into your house without you know, a search warrant. That's why you don't have to testify against your own self-interest. Our, our founding you know, members felt like we need to have this right to privacy. But in practicality, that's not the way that this has ended up playing out. We don't have that right, so to speak. And, and I think that's a shame because without privacy, you don't have autonomy. And if you don't have autonomy, then you can't very well have a functioning democracy. I love the tie that you're making between privacy and democracy. I think it is very, very true. Um, well, I want to talk to you a little bit about the third party doctrine. You just point, uh, said something that had me think about that. So. This is something I've talked about in the past, something I'm very concerned about. And so third party doctrine as a legal concept has been the idea that if you give data to a third party, it doesn't have the same protection that it would have if, it was, if the data was kind of in your 
vicinity, like in your house or whatever, even though we know with the technological age, a lot of us use third parties to store data, to share data, to do different things. What, what are your thoughts about that? No, I, I agree in large part because um, you can't do anything today without kicking off a trail of data. It's, it's a simple impossibility to do that. Um, and so I think that that's why it's so, you know, it's not like we're talking attorney-client privilege, right? But even if we were talking attorney-client privilege, at least in Oklahoma, there's exceptions. So for example, if I needed somebody in a meeting with me to help me understand what was happening or to help advise me, then the privilege extends, even though there's a third party in the room with me and my lawyer. Typically, if there's a third party in the room, that breaks the confidentiality. But here, because we're all trying to go towards the same goal, we're able to unite and it doesn't break the privilege. And I think it's the same thing here. If I transfer my data to a third party, it's because I have a goal in mind. I'm trying to achieve an end of some sort. That doesn't give them free reign over my data because I think of the data as me. That is me. You are taking portions of me and you're using it in some way, either for your own profit or for your own benefit. And so at the end of the day, I really do believe that we have to have legislation that addresses this core concept of that data is mine. It belongs to me. I have control over it one way or another, irrespective of who I transfer it to unless I consent. Yeah. And a consent thing is a big, a big deal and a big issue. Um, you know, at your example that you gave about contacting a data broker and them saying, you know, you're not in California, we don't have to do X. Um, I'm hoping to see more legislation, and we are seeing it in, in more legislation where they're really putting a fine point on the third-party data transfer, especially if you're selling the data. So, you know, would a person reasonably expect that their data would be sold to 100 different companies for some reason that they don't, something that they don't benefit from? What are your thoughts? Yeah. And yeah, and I can't speak to any other state because I didn't grow up in any other state, but I can tell you in Oklahoma, it, there's a massive amount of ignorance behind data, right? People just do not understand it, but they don't think about it. They don't have it at the forefront of their mind. And so I absolutely think that it's important that we do continue down the path of ensuring that third parties aren't able to dispose of this information. Um it's just, it's befuddling to me why this is, and Josh West, the majority leader, it's the same way. It is so confusing to us how it is that anybody has a problem with the concept of your data is yours, um, that you have the right to control it. Um, you know, it's just like if I had a camera in my house that was recording me 24-7 that I set up and that was on an old VHS cassette, that's mine to do with. Well, today, if I've got a, you know, a ring doorbell or whatever, that information is being kicked off somewhere else that I don't know where it goes. But most people don't know that. They don't appreciate that. And so I do think that we have to begin an educational process with the citizens especially in Oklahoma, but I assume in most other states as well, about what this is really all about. And that's why I applaud you. I applaud, you know, Social Dilemma. I applaud all of these organizations that are coming out to try and educate people because that's where it starts. It starts with education and communication. Um, if, if, if you don't try and educate the populace, if you don't try and communicate with them, then you're just going to be banging your head against the wall all day long. And so I really, um, I, I think that's where we need to head in mass on a large scale. Yeah. You just touched on something that's really interesting. I love to get your thoughts on it. And it's kind of consent and choice. So 
right now, when you say the example of the ring doorbell, when you decide you want to use it, you have to, no one reads the 80 pages of privacy policies or whatever. So you're consenting to a lot of this just so that you can use it and you don't really have a choice to opt out. So you either don't use it or you consent to all these things. And I think the problem with consent is that you can consent to things that aren't in your best interest. <laughs> all of this, we all do it because we all want to use the functionality. Yeah. Right. That's that's a problem. Um, and a lot of that is about sort of education and transparency. And, you know, I would love a law where like a privacy policy has to be like one page. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, do you, do you, I, do you sell my data? Yes or no? <laughs> There you go. There you go. And 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 I also think, you know, to that extent, I mean, I think that to the extent that there were, you know, because they always say, you know, we're third party vendors or your third party, whatever. And you still don't know who they are. And so I almost think that, you know, to your point, a one page policy, whatever it might be. Uh, but for that hyperlink, you can also see who all the vendors are. Who are these people that you're selling it to me? Because I don't think it's informed consent if you just say we're going to give it to people, right? You got to tell me who you're giving it to. Then it's informed consent. Um, and, but I also think that, and I do think that more people, if you made it simplistic like that, you know, Cox Communications privacy policy is huge. And I went through it and oh my God, keystrokes and everything else. But I think that if people could read and go, oh my God, I don't know these companies. Why would I give them this information? Because if you say third party, they may think it's somebody that's actually trying to help in the transaction itself, which is usually okay, not a problem. But I'd like to know that. I'd like to know who it is. Um, so so I, I, I think that we can make clear um, policies. I think lawyers get in the way because they try and think of every possible thing that goes wrong. And I live by the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. That's the way I've always practiced law. Um, and, and that's why I try and communicate because these things get in the weeds real quick and most people are in a hurry. And so they don't want to take the time to do it. But if you make it simple and in a format that they can easily follow, then people can give informed consent. And I think it's possible. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. So if it were uh, the world, according to Colin, and we did everything you said, what would be your wish for privacy uh, in the U.S., anywhere in the world, human, legislative stuff, law? What are your thoughts? So I would really like to see something like the Data Collaboration Alliance or some of the stuff that Jaron Lanier has been working on talking about control over data, that, that somehow there's a centralized way for you to control your data. So that's my dream world. Uh, and in which you could also maybe be paid a return on the use of your data. Right. Um, I think that those are good ideas. But ultimately, what I would want to see at the end of the day is my ability to a consent before you even collect a thing from me and then B, give me the right to access, correct, delete and the right to be forgotten on that, um, because I think that the onus needs to be on the business that if they're going to use my information for profit, then they should also have the responsibility that when I say quit it, that they stop and they notify everybody else to stop as well. Uh, you don't just get a free bang for your buck in this world. And unfortunately, we've let data companies and data brokerage companies get away with this for way too long. And um, I really hope that something happens in the next year or two to, to keep this uh, from happening ever again. Uh, I, I really, I can't tell you how much I think this has had an influence on our politics today. And um, 
I not for the better, not for the better in the least, because we're all in our echo chambers. The way our districts uh, are drawn up through gerrymandering, those also are in echo chambers. And so we've got to get out of the echo chambers. And the only way to do that is by giving control and lack and, and, and prevent specific targeted advertising. Excellent. Well, this is such a great show. You bring such energy and passion to this uh, to this discussion. Uh, I love that you mentioned the Data Collaboration Alliance. I love them over there. Uh, Chris McClellan, I know him quite well. They're doing really great work. So I know we're in good hands with people like you, Colin. You're fighting the good fight and helping to advocate for everyone, not just yourself. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for doing what you're doing because now I'm a follower and I appreciate staying informed. Uh, so do thank you so very much for this opportunity. Yes, yes. We'll talk soon. Hopefully we have uh, ways we can collaborate in the future. I would love it. Excellent.